welcome back to the Nerds New Cool Podcast. I'm John. I'm Josh. And I am Justin. How's it going, fellas? It's going pretty well. It's going good. We've got Excellent. some nice weather outside today. Yes, we do. That's nice. That's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Oh, foreshadowing. Oh, shameless right plug. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yep. So, so if, if you haven't guessed it, our today's episode is going to be 70s television. That's right. But before we do that, as always, let's talk really quickly about what we started out on. I've got to throw a quick update in there, by the way. A couple episodes ago, I was told that I said David Lynch, not David Fincher. Okay? No, I'm sorry. I said David Fincher and not David Already Lynch. Already messing up again. David Fincher is known for Mindhunter and Seven. David Lynch has done Twin, Twin Peaks. And I don't know how I possibly forgot that. Or I just messed that up. I know yeah. the difference. Justin, what does it say about you, though, that when you mess up, it's just too dated. people automatically are like just going after you? They reach out, they yeah, call, they yeah. email. What people does it say about you. you as a person? I think they expect a higher level of excellence from me that than maybe be. from you two. That probably and, is true, yeah. And as a result, uh, the, the masses have spoken, and I apologize wholeheartedly. <laughs> so having said that... Correction what, noted. What I've been watching, kind of in the spirit of, of revenge, is a television show called Narcos Mexico. And actually, I've been watching the second season. And actually, full disclosure, I watched the entire second season... And because I'm so obsessed with it, I restarted Narcos, the original one, and I'm almost through all three of those seasons as well in a matter of about two weeks. I have a serious problem. But let's talk about what it is. Basically, Narcos Mexico season two is dealing with the state of the Guadalajara cartel, drug cartel, after Kiki, uh, who's played by Michael Pena, he's an American DEA agent, after he's been murdered. This show came out uh, February 13th, the entire, the entire season. Uh, on uh, 2020 on Netflix. And it's created by Carlos Bernard, Chris Brancato, and Doug Miro, who also did the original Narcos. I mean, it's basically the same thing. Is Carlos Bernard in the in the show? I don't think so. It's Tony Almeida in 24. Carlos Bernard. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that's fun. Yeah. That's a fun fact fun right fact. there. Now you like it even more. I do, because I like you 24. Love you some 24. And Tony Almeida, and all of his different personality traits yeah. in that show yeah uh it was written by ava uh Arigis. i butchered that name for sure johnny newman and terence e papa who also wrote the original um narcos as well stars diego De- diego luna as miguel angel felix gallardo who's we know him from rogue one it also stars scoot mcnary all, all things coming up scoot mcnary as well breslin he's the narrator He's also in the actual season this time. Uh, he's from Halt and Catch Fire and Batman vs. Superman. And if, as we've mentioned before, um, famous Budweiser commercials, Bud Light commercials. And Jose Maria Yazpik, he plays Amado Carrillo uh, Fuentes. And he's from a bunch of different uh, Mexican films and TV. And listen, I just love this show. It's got some pretty, pretty great storytelling. Um, there's some historical accuracies, which I am a big fan of. And it really just sets the stage for, I mean, it's cool because it's kind of telling us the story of the Mexican Narcos, and we're up to the 90s, and we're going to kind of see where it goes for the next couple of decades. Pretty awesome. So there it is, Narcos, season two, Mexico. Check it out. Check it out. <clears throat> so for me, I've been, I've been really in a reading kick lately, so I've been reading a book called One Minute Out. I've talked about a, a book from this series before. 
It's called the Gray Man series. It's got Court Gentry is a contractor for the CIA and a contract assassin, and he completes a simple assassination mission. However, when he goes in there, the repercussions are he finds a human trafficking ring that he is now trying to take down. Um, it debuted February 25th, 2020, and it was written by Mark Greeny. I love this this series of books. This is the ninth one in the series. It's a phenomenal read. Um, the guy really does his research. Shows how sad the human trafficking problem is in our world that really doesn't get talked about a lot. So if you like spy thrillers, check it out. So this came out like two weeks ago. Yes. Very impressive. While you watch TV all the time, I am reading books. So, I mean, to be fair, as far as my, uh, uh, what's the word? I don't can't think the right word. Because um, you don't read. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Touche. Uh, commitment, maybe, to this uh, is I finished Narco season two of Mexico within two weeks as well. There you go. You read the book. I watched the whole season. Just saying. You guys decide who's better. <laughs> <laughs> let's see what john has been doing yeah so i have also been on netflix uh and i have been nerding out on altered carbon season two which i actually just finished this morning <clears throat> i'm really a big fan of this series it is very interesting and we were talking about this before it's one of those shows where you have to pay attention to what's going on you can't be multitasking while you watch this show or else you'll miss something yeah, and, and just you have to, to just go back and watch it again. You really have to pay attention. And just to be clear, um, I feel like I did read a novel because uh, I don't know if I made this clear or not. Narcos is all in subtitles. So you were working on your <laughs> bilingualism too, as well. Yeah, so I couldn't just be you know working on this podcast episode while watching Narcos. I had to like be paying attention. You know, reading. you're like the guy in Billy Madison. I can't remember his name. The bad guy who's sitting there cleaning the guy's butt, listening to the music and yep. the bilingualism. That's Justin there. I, I feel, I'm learning Spanish as I'm yeah. watching this show. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. See, uh, Josh, tú eres una chica bonita. John may oh. not may know what that means. <laughs> I never took Spanish. I took French. Oh. It means you're a beautiful lady. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Gracias. De nada. So See? <laughs> we're gonna hit the altered carbon market. Yes, here. season yes. two. <laughs> so it's it's set in a future where consciousness is digitized and stored, and a prisoner returns to life in a new body and must solve a mind-bending murder to win his freedom. So your consciousness is stored in something called a stack. It basically sits there right at the base of your, you know, right right in your neck. And that's where your consciousness is, where it is. And you can take it out and you can put it in a whole other body. And then all of a sudden you're walking around as someone completely different, but your mind is staying the same. Yeah. So this season two debuted on February 27th, 2020. And my commitment is that I already finished it. <laughs> very impressive. See? Very impressive. And it was created by, I'm going to butcher this, Laeta... Caligridis. Uh, she also wrote uh, Terminator Genesis and wrote the screenplay for Shutter Island, which is a really cool movie if you haven't seen it. Yeah, she's got some writing. I enjoy Shutter Island. Leo. Yeah. Uh, it stars, stars Anthony Mackie as Takeshi Kovach, who is Falcon and was also in 8 Mile. Chris Connor as Poe from American Crime Story. And Renee Elise Goldsberry as Calchris Falconer who was also in One Life to Live and the movie The House with the Clock on the Walls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So we were talking off air. We should we should get back to this real quick. Do we think that Josh would like this show? 
I'm going to tell you why I think you would like it, and then I'll tell you why I don't think you'd like it. I think that you would like the storytelling. I think you'd like this concept of like a utopian, like it's kind of, it really kind of looks at revolution and classism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of foul language and nudity. And I think. And again, I. And killing. <laughs> And murder. I, I, my retort to that would be: I have watched like Game of Thrones. So yeah, I know, right. but it's almost excessive. <laughs> Intuitous. It, it can be. Say. Yeah, it can be, and yeah, it's definitely like classism is probably the best way to describe it because you yeah. have people that are scratching around, and you have people that, you know, while your consciousness is on this thing called a stack, if you're rich enough, it's backed up on the cloud essentially, just yeah. like anything. So mm-hmm. like, your stack can get destroyed, and then you can just. You just get spun back up again. Interesting. If you have enough money, if you don't, and that gets destroyed, you're, you're gone. Yeah, you some... can like upgrade to like the most beautiful body. You can upgrade to like a. That sounds like a movie. Gosh, it's got Justin Timberlake in it. Oh, I, I know. Talked about this movie on, on air before. It's called, it's called In Time. In Time, it's, yes. It's been on some of the premium channels you get recently. Minutes yep. Of mm-hmm. life. Yeah. And some people have like a million minutes. Yeah. And they'll just never die. Yeah. And in order for a few to be immortal. Many must die. Mm-hmm. It's probably the same concept. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, Altered Carbon. Check it out. Watch if you watch season one first. Don't jump into season two. Yeah, you, you won't. Know. You won't know what's going. on. You may on. not know what's going on even if you have seen season one. So certainly watch it first. True story. On to the meat and potatoes of our episode, which is again our TV series through the decades, the 1970s. I feel like we're finally getting into. What's interesting is that I I was surprised at how many shows. I knew of and somehow had seen or maybe just knew or just were super relevant from the 50s and 60s. But I don't remember watching any of these episodes. I remember watching a lot of these shows. Absolutely. Are you guys 70s babies? No. 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 You're in the 80s. Okay. Shut, yeah. shut up. I mean, I'm, I'm an 89 baby. <laughs> yeah. So I'm an you're still baby. in the 80s too with us, yeah. my friend. So yeah. We're just at different ends of the spectrum <laughs> of the 80s. So a little bit of background about the 70s, which we were not born in. Television had become commonplace in most households. So at this point, almost everyone's got a TV. Yeah, I mean, 90% of all households had a TV, and average Americans relied more on TV than newspapers for the latest and freshest news, while the American government had grasped the idea that television could be a powerful tool in getting their agendas across, which is interesting because now you've kind of seen that move from TV to social media in today's world. Yep. So just yeah. a different trends throughout history. Absolutely. And television in the 1970s saw a lot of significant changes. Whereas Western dramas and genial family you know, rural comedies were out, it was time for television to get real. Yeah, and by getting real, we, started, we saw a person named Norman Lear, who's a writer-producer, and basically he started to break down some cultural barriers and redefining taboos and, and really... Bigotry was a big thing he took on with shows like All in the Family, which we'll talk about, Maud, and Good Times. Archie Bunker, who we'll talk about later, burst on screen snorting and bellowing about... I'm not going to repeat those. Some some, sl- some, some, some some slurs. Yeah, some slurs. Racial yeah, slurs. Racial epithets. Slurs. He yeah. decried miniskirts, bleeding heart churchmen, food he couldn't put ketchup on, and sex during daytime hours. He mentioned what had previously been unmentionable on TV. With his advent, a mass media microcosm of middle America took shape, and a new national hero, or was it a villain, was born. Mm-hmm. And the 70s also proved that single women could be leading ladies. The Mary Tyler Moore, spo- the Mary Tyler Moore Show and its spinoff, Rhoda, proved that female leads could be funny and authentic. Yeah, and Mary Tyler Moore played a single woman working on a nightly TV show 
during a time when lots of young women were entering the workforce. And Rhoda, Valerie Harper's character, moves to Manhattan to find an apartment, a job, and a man. And apart from that, another new trend of sitcoms in the 1970s was based on the young, hip, and urban, and escapist concepts to appeal to a wider and younger audience. Happy Days, Charlie's Angels, and Three's Company are prime examples of this trend. And sports broadcast might still be in its infancy during the area du- during this era, but after ABC teamed up with the NFL to launch Monday Night Football in 1970, Monday nights would never be the same. Also, the launch of sports cable network channel ESPN in 1979 truly revolutionized sports casting and changed the course of American sports culture. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk more about that in the 80s, kind of the rise of of ESPN and the 24-hour sports cycle for the most part. Mm-hmm. Miniseries also saw the rise during the 1970s, many of which were adapted from written works such as novels. With the popularity of early anthologies like Masterpiece Theater on PBS, which is still around, that that paved the way for more successful miniseries such as ABC's Rich Man, Poor Man, and most notably, which I don't know about you guys, I watched in middle school. I know, I did too. Roots. Roots. Famous football player slash criminal in that show. Anybody know? No. OJ. Oh, really? O.J. Simpson. I just remember LeVar Burton. Yeah, yes. O.J. Simpson was Kunta a, Kinte. No, he was not Kunta Kinte, he but was he was not. a character in... No, no, I'm saying LeVar Burton was right. Kunta Kinte. Oh, yeah, no, but O.J. was in it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, Marcus Welby, M.D., Medical Center Emergency, and MASH were among the first serious medical dramas that became popular and successful during the decade. And the 1970s were also a fruitful time for sci-fi TV. Series like The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and Battlestar Galactica lorded primetime television slots and even spawned a slew of merchandise items. Soap operas were also experiencing a big boom in the 70s as its audience expanded. Did you guys ever watch Battlestar Galactica? Have you seen the new one? I have not. I really haven't seen either. Hmm. Dwight Schrute has. Yes, he has. It's pretty great. It's pretty pretty great. Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Yeah. The bar was raised on children's programming also. We We saw Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Sesame Street uh, pop up, and that basically shows that TV could be used as a medium to educate kids. Okay, so the top 10 TV shows in the 1970 and 71 season were number one, Marcus Welby, MD, The Flip Wilson Show, Here's Lucy. And then coming in at number four, Ironside, then Gunsmoke, the ABC Movie of the Week, Hawaii Five O, and Medical Center at number eight. And then this one just, just won't go away is Bonanza, number nine. I mean, Bonanza has been around 50s, for, 60s, and for decades. Man, uh, it's number nine. Number ten, the FBI. And these actually last three were tied. The FBI, the Mod Squad was 11, and then number 12 was Adam 12. And we're starting to see a lot of – or I, we, we saw a lot of cop shows. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like 10 years later in 78 and 79. The top ten shows were – number one was Laverne and Shirley. Number two was Three's Company. Number three was Mork and Mindy, and number four was Happy Days. And followed by Angie, and then 60 Minutes, MASH, The Ropers, All in the Family, and then coming in at number 10, Taxi. Yeah, we started seeing a lot more comedies, and you kind of start seeing a lot of those cop shows and those shows about the uh, about cowboys and things like that pretty much, pretty much go away. Yep. All right, so let's talk honorable mentions before we go into the few that we're going to really go into depth. These are... 
shows that debuted in the 70s or were most popular in the 70s. So some of them popped up there, and maybe they were more popular in the 80s. Some of them were still around. Pretty extensive yeah. list here. One of them is Happy Days. I I almost chose Happy Days to do because I, I really love Happy Days, and there's a tough choice not doing that one. But the Fonz, you know, Coach Klein. So <laughs> then you had the Carol Burnett Show, The Rockford Files, Sanford and Son, which is also a great show. WKRP in Cincinnati. You didn't say that right. You had to go, WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, I, That's the song. You guys don't remember that one? I know. Oh, God. I wasn't born until 1989, so... I'm familiar with the show, but I don't know if I've ever seen it. I mean, I was not born in the 50s, but I know. True. Right. Three's Company, Ugh. Columbo, Taxi. We had the $6 million woman, and of course, we had to spin off with the Bionic Woman, the Brady Bunch, which is one I almost did, even though I don't, I, I mean, I watched a little bit. I love Brady Bunch. I like the mm-hmm. TV, I like the movies. <laughs> The movie, yeah. They're so because they're so bad. They make they're like making fun of the TV show, which is fantastic. Uh, we had Laverne and Shirley, and then of course, Welcome Back, Cotter, which I even I, I didn't necessarily consider doing it, but it makes me think of Scrubs every time. Welcome back, Coxer. Welcome back, Coxer. <laughs> we have Little House on the Prairie, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Charlie's Angels, which has had a lot of movie spinoffs, and Mork and Mindy. And speaking of movie spinoffs, there's Starsky and Hutch, uh, and also The Jeffersons, The Odd Couple, and The Scooby-Doo Show. Which was talked about last time for the yeah. 60s. Yeah. Uh, well, and there's different renditions of The Scooby-Doo mm-hmm. Shows, though. There's a bunch of different ones. There's called slight variations of that. Barney Miller was also a show. Wonder Woman, which was pr- pretty interesting. Let's not forget The Bob Newhart Show, which he had also a spinoff of that, and The Waltons. Yes, and then SNL came around during this time, back when it was good. Incredible Hulk and The Muppet Show. Oh, Lou Ferrigno at his oh, finest. Lou Ferrigno. And The Muppet Show. Did you guys watch the, the newest Muppet Show? You talking about Muppet Babies no, on Disney TV? Well, no. I, I definitely watch Muppet Babies. Of course you do. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't watch Muppet Babies? What did you say it was on Disney what? Disney Junior it's on. Well, I think it was on Nickelodeon. No. Trust me. It's on Disney Junior. What well, is now... But I'm saying when it first came out, it was probably on Nickelodeon or Nick Jr. Yeah, for sure. Muppet Babies is a new series on Disney <clears throat> Jr. Okay, it is not a new. It's a I remake. Think, I think the Muppet okay. Babies were a thing. It was a show that was definitely in the 80s. Yeah. I, I watched we're that. We're gonna have for to look sure. into that. Abby and I watch it now, and it's on Disney Jr. It's a new show. It's a new show. Oh, it's a remake. I was gonna say the one that was on it was like on ABC or something, and it was the Muppets. But they're but it's it's them having their own television talk talk show. Oh. It, it was basically like a how it, it was uh, like the real world style. Kind of yeah, but behind the scenes of of them getting guests on and like how to prepare. It's pretty pretty funny. Yeah, Muppet Babies twenty eighteen only lasted a season though. Yeah. So sorry. Nope. And then rounding out the list, we've got Good Times, Battlestar Galactica, and Sesame Street. And finally, we're going to talk Mash and. <clears throat> We're not going to go into a lot of depth with this one. This is a really important honorable mention, though. If you didn't know this, the top ten individual most watched broadcasts by one like one episode, one show, all of these of the top twenty are all Super Bowls, except for the Mash Farewell, like finale, which came out in uh, February twenty eighth, nineteen eighty three. I know we're talking the seventies, but. This is a pretty impactful show during the 70s. It just happened to finish in 83. Yeah, I mean, the show started, it, it ran from 72 to 83. So it was the bulk of it was in the 70s. 
Yeah. Uh, one more, th- a couple more things about um, Mash. Jamie Farr and Alan Alda were actually the only two main cast members to serve in the U.S. Army, and they served in South Korea. And then Radar, Radar's teddy bear, was actually once housed at the Smithsonian and was sold at an auction in 2005 for almost $12,000. Good gosh. A teddy bear? It's a pretty, pretty important teddy bear. Yeah, and it was, it, was, it was critically acclaimed. You know, the show won eight Golden Globes and then actually had another 54 wins of you know, various awards and 153 nominations. Wow. So it won a lot, and a lot of their Golden Globes were for um, Best Actor, Best Television Series, Best Actress. So, yeah, individual and overall achievements for the show. MASH was a pretty impactful show. That's all we're going to say about MASH, though, today. Yep. We're going to get into another show, which we have mentioned before, which is Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Did we all watch this show growing up? I know you weren't born. <laughs> I was never really a huge... I mean, I watched some of it, but I was never really a huge Mr. Rogers fan. Mm, I was a huge Mr. Rogers fan. I watched it a lot. <laughs> so, a little bit of information about it. <clears throat> it's an American half-hour educational children's television series. It was created and hosted by Fred Rogers. And the series Mr. Rogers debuted on October 15th, 1962 on CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation uh, TV. Now, I know it debuted in 62, but this was an evolution of of shows. So there's actually a lot of different. Mm -hmm. That was the original. But as we'll talk about here, it it, it evolved. Mm -hmm. And the series is aimed primarily at preschool children ages two to five, but it was labeled by PBS as an appropriate for all ages. Yeah, and, and as as you mentioned, it's hosted by Fred Rogers, known to millions simply as Mr. Rogers, and he used his gentle charm to communicate with his audience of children, topics centered on nearly every conceivable matter of concern to children, ranging from everyday fears related to you know, going to sleep, getting immunizations, and disappointment about not getting one's way, to losing a loved one to death and physical handicaps. It really ca- it covered everything. Yes, it did. The dates aired. It aired uh, the national U.S. national debut of the show occurred on February nineteenth, nineteen sixty-eight, and it aired on NET and its successor, which turned into PBS until August thirty-first, two thousand one. So it was on, it was on for many decades. Long time. Long time. Yeah, it was directed for two hundred and eighty episodes by Bob Walsh from nineteen seventy-two to two thousand one, and David F. Chen directed two hundred and sixty episodes. And it was written, the bulk of it was actually written by Fred Rogers himself. He wrote 895 episodes from 1968 to 2001. That's talent. That's, that's, that's a lot of writing. That's a lot of writing, and that's a lot of work. And then Betty Siemens wrote 41 episodes from 73 to 75. And, well, as we mentioned, it stars Fred Rogers as Mr. Rogers for every episode, 895 of them. It also starred Betty Aberlin as Lady Aberlin for 495 episodes. David Newell was Mr. McFeely for 438 episodes. Joe Negri as a handyman Negri was 332 episodes. And Robert Trow as Robert Troll for 268 episodes. And it's, it's taglines, as if anybody has seen the show, they're going to know this. It's, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Won't you be, ni- won't you be my neighbor? And hello, neighbor. <laughs> so kind of where it comes from, some nerd facts. The series, again, had a genesis in 1953 when Rogers and Josie Carey, we'll talk about her in a second, joined the newly formed public television station WQED, which was based in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and on 
April 5th, 1954, WKED debuted The Children's Corner, which is a program that featured Rogers as a puppeteer and composer, and Josie Carey was a host and lyricist. And it was an unscripted weekday afternoon live TV program. And it was this program where many of the puppets, characters, and music used later were developed, such as King Friday the 13th, Daniel Tiger, and X the Owl. And it was around this time, too, that Rogers began wearing his famous sneakers as he found them to be quieter than his work shoes while he was moving about behind the set. The show won a Sylvania Award for Best Children's Show and was briefly broadcast nationally on the NBC television network. The awards were given for advancing creative television techniques and were considered as prestigious as the Emmys in the early days of TV. So, I mean, that's, so it was first called, first iteration was called Children's Corner, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Rogers moved to Toronto in 1961 to work on a news series based on the Children's Corner called Mr. Rogers, a 15-minute program on CBC television. And Mr. Rogers aired on CBC for about four years and a number of the set pieces that he would take back with him to the U.S., such as the trolley and castle, were created for the Canadian program by CBC designers and in collaboration with Bruce Atridge, who was the producer. Most importantly, Rogers appeared on camera in the new show rather than only appearing through puppets or characters. So we actually see see him, not just the puppets and mm-hmm. the characters he made. And in 1966, he acquired the rights to his program from the CBC and moved the show to WKED in Pittsburgh, where he had worked on the Children's Corner. He renamed the show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which initially aired regionally in the Northeast U.S. through EEN, and it included educational stations in Boston, D.C., and New York City. The 100 episodes of the half-hour show incorporated neighborhood of make-believe segments from the CBC episodes with additionally reality-based opening and closing material produced in Pittsburgh. So this show, Mr. Rogers, was actually canceled in 1967 due to lack of funding. But the public response was so large that they started to search for new funding. Yeah, so in 1967, the Sears Roebuck Foundation provided funding for the program which enabled it to be seen nationwide on national education television. Taping began on September 21st, 1967, for the first season. And the first national broadcast of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood appeared on most NET stations on February 19, 1968. And so, now we're in the 70s. In 1970, PBS replaced NET and inherited the program. Around the same time, the show had a slight title change to the more familiar Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The show was broadcast from, again, February 19th, 1968 to February 20th, 1976, and then they took a little bit of a hiatus, apparently, and again from August 20th, 1979 to August 31st, 2001. The final episode was taped on December 1st, 2000. I, you know, I think that's just crazy to me. I don't know why I didn't realize it lasted that long. It's a long range. Over 30 years. Yeah. yeah. And you were in time. high school at that point, right, Josh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, not yet. Uh, all right. Well, we're, okay. <laughs> we were in college. Yeah. yeah. The studio at WKED in Pittsburgh, where the series was taped, was later renamed the Fred Rogers Studio. And Mr. Rogers always explained to the audience what he was doing when he fed his fish. This was in response to a piece of mail from a blind girl who wanted to know when it happened on each episode. Putting on the sweaters was Fred Rogers' way of saying hello to his mother. And. Fun fact, if it wasn't the green one, I would cry. That's what my mom told me. (laughs) Mr. Rogers had about 25 sweaters that he wore over the years of the program. 
They were all hand-knit by his mother, who each year would make one of, for each of her children and give it to them as a Christmas present. And Rogers was colorblind. So I'm not going to hold that against him that he didn't wear the green one. All the time. All the time. Because I don't think he realized yes. which one he was wearing. Well, he was probably told. Okay. All right. Well, they, now I'm a little more mad at him. <laughs> and during one year of the show, the neighborhood trolley travels about 5,000 miles. <laughs> yep. There were no hands on Daniel Stripe Tiger's clock because in the neighborhood of make-believe, we can pretend that it is any time we want. I like that. And Michael Keaton, Batman, a Pittsburgh native, was the original operator of Picture Picture, which was a skit on the show. Pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, guests on the show were often surprised to find that although Rogers was just as gentle and patient in life as he was on television, he was nevertheless a perfectionist who did not allow shoddy ad-libbing. He believed that children were thoughtful people who deserved programming as good as anything produced for adults on television. Yeah. A Yale study pitted fans of Sesame Street against Mr. Rogers' neighborhood watchers and found that kids who watched Mr. Rogers tended to remember more of the storylines and had a much higher tolerance of delay, which meant they were more patient. Hmm. And George Romero, who is best known from Night of the Living Dead, said, Fred was the first guy who trusted me enough to hire me to actually shoot film. As a young man just out of college, Romero honed his filmmaking skills, making a series of short segments for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, creating a dozen or so titles. One of those was How Light Bulbs Are Made, and Mr. Rogers Gets a Tonsillectomy. <laughs> the Zombie King, who passed away in 2017, considered the latter his first big production, shot in a working hospital. I still joke that Mr. Rogers Gets a test. Ugh. A tonsillectomy is the scariest film I've ever made. What I really meant is that I was scared blankless while I was trying to pull it off. Shirtless, right? Yeah. Shirtless. Shirtless. Yes. yes. Isn't that funny that George Romero <laughs> got his start on Mr. Rogers? Yeah, yeah. Pretty crazy. And um, this does not surprise me at all that Rogers was an ordained minister, and as such, a man of tremendous faith who preached tolerance wherever he went. Yeah, and he, and he would respond to fan mail um, basically every day as part of his regimented routine began at 7 a.m. with a prayer, included time for studying, writing, making phone calls, swimming, weighing himself, and responding to every fan who had taken the time to reach out. That's Josh, is that, is that how your day starts? I wish I could say that you I was that up, cool. You get up, study, I pray. do pray in the morning. I do pray. You go swim. For, go for a quick swim. Weigh yeah. yourself. I do not do that. I am not Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so, in 1969, Rogers, who was unrelatively unknown, went before the Senate to plead for a $20 million grant for public broadcasting, which had been proposed by President Johnson but was in danger of being sliced in half by Richard Nixon. His passionate plea about how TV had the potential to turn kids into productive citizens worked. Instead of cutting the budget, funding for public TV increased from $9 million to $22 million. Don't you feel like this is like an Andy Dufresne situation? Like, I'm just going to send him a letter every week and after they get the money i'm gonna send him now twice a week week. (laughs) yeah and and years later rogers also managed to convince the supreme court that that using vcrs to record tvs tv shows at home shouldn't be considered a form of copyright infringement which was the argument of some in this contentious debate rogers argued that recording a program like his allowed working parents to sit down with their children and watch shows as a family again he was he was convincing and in 1984, Rogers donated one of his iconic sweaters to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. I, I wonder if that's a green one. It better be the green one. <laughs> if not, 
gonna Smithsonian's to... off my list. No, it's actually on my list. Got to go to DC and check it out and see yeah. what color it is. I'll bring a green sweater. So, I mean, why does this matter? Like, why does this show matter? I mean, just honestly, the last couple things that you said, as far as increasing the budget for public TV funding for education for kids. I mean, millions of kids were affected by him. Yeah, millions. I mean, we could even talk copyright infringement, and like the whole VCR using a tape, mm-hmm. television shows, yeah, DVRs, those kind of things. I mean, and the fact that it was on just for thirty years. I right. Mean, two to three generations grew up watching mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I mean, of all the like, as far as formative television shows that I can recall watching, besides Muppet Babies. Uh, I'm going to say it's it's going to be Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I said that last one jokingly, but Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, like, I, I remember watching that and, like, so many life lessons were taught to me as a young child. I mean, yeah, it was that or Sesame Street for me. Yeah. Like, that was that was what you watched. I mean, until you, you know, you know got a little bit older and then it was Saturday morning cartoons. But, like, when you were at that developmental age, it was – Pretty much those two shows, and that was it. Well, I know Sesame Street taught life lessons, but I think it was also a lot more about, like, counting and about, like, learning things like that, like different languages, colors. Uh, And I think Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was much more about, like, how do you become a good person, right? Sharing. Almost like putting you in real-world situations. Yeah, dealing with fears and overcoming challenges, even at a young age. I don't know. It's just an incredible show. Yeah. So, all right. Let's get to our next show that we decided to go into, and this show is All in the Family. So some general info. Archie Bunker was a bigoted, working-class family man who held his views of the world. His viewpoints clashed with nearly everyone he comes into contact with, especially his son-in-law, Mike Stivic, or as Archie delights in calling him, Meathead. Can I just say the transition that we've just made from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to All in the Family is pretty crazy yeah different tv seamless seamless but also a significant jump in different audiences we're going from one end of the spectrum to another yeah still some life lessons being taught here though but more in comedy and satire true yeah so john when did it air oh i'm sorry it aired from actually Completely in the 70s, from 1971 to 1979, and it was written by Norman Lear, who also wrote The Jefferson, the Jeffersons and One Day at a Time. As we mentioned before, it starred Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker, who's also from In the Heat of the Night and Archie Bunker's Place. Which was a bad spinoff yeah. after. Uh, Gene Stapleton as Edith Bunker, who's from The Love Boat, and Michael. Yeah, and then Robert Reiner, Robert, Rob Reiner as Mike Stivic. He was the director of A Few Good Men. This is Spinal Tap. He's done a lot of stuff. He's been in a lot of things. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. And then Sally Struthers as Gloria Stivic, and she was in Gilmore Girls. And the tagline is, you're about to see something new in comedy, real people to air as human, which makes the bunkers just about the most human family you'll ever want to meet, also the funniest. Enjoy a laugh on them and the prejudices which keep them in constant battle and bafflement. you got to wonder... I mean, were people tuning into this because it was humorous? I mean, it was definitely funny, but I mean, like, were they laughing at it because, like, oh, I can't believe people act like this? Or was it more of like a, oh, I know that people act like this? So and, and someone's actually saying. I had to read a book about this in a grad class. It was all about All in the Family, and people really connected with Archie Bunker. A lot of the people in the 70s, being a World War II vet, and then, like, a working man at a union. So it kind of became like he was the 70s to a lot of people. 
Well, I guess what I mean is, like, do you think in a positive way or, like, to the detriment For, of society? I think society? They, they related with him, is at least what the book was saying that I read. I read about it. In a book. In a book. Okay, we'll talk about it at the end. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, circle back around to that. Uh, a couple of nerd facts. Actually, a lot of nerd facts. Carol O'Connor's personal views on political and social issues were actually very liberal and the polar opposite to those of Archie. That actually may have answered my question a little bit, but yeah. we'll come back. After season one of Archie Bunker's Place, the writers confessed that they were having a hard time explaining Edith's frequent absences. The character only appeared in six episodes in... Norman Lear spoke with Gene Stapleton, who was getting tired of playing Edith, and he was against the character dying. However, Edith, or Gene Stapleton, said, Norman, she's only fiction. And after a long pause, Lear finally said, to me, she isn't. She realized she hurt his feelings. And the, the role of Mike, Mike Stivick was, was originally offered to Harrison Ford, who turned down the part because he felt Archie Bunker's bigotry was too offensive. Hmm. Interesting. It would have been fun to see Harrison Ford in that role. Yeah. Notoriously, the first toilet flush on American primetime television was heard on this show. That's probably why everyone loved it so much. Tuned in. Real. Writers considered a storyline in which Archie had an affair with the next-door neighbor, Irene Lorenzo. But the plans were dropped as it was determined to be too far out of character for both Archie and Irene. Yeah, and there were a few spinoffs of this show, but probably the most famous was The Jeffersons. And it was also the longest running. It aired for 11 seasons, which was two more than All in the Family did. And Gene Stapleton decided to do the series over starring in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. She would have played Miss T- Mrs. TV. Hmm. Can I just say, I don't, I'm trying to think, rack my brain right now if, if there's a more successful spinoff than the Jeffersons. I'm going to say maybe Frasier from Cheers. Yeah. I don't even know if that's more successful. I think it may have aired as... I don't even know if it aired as many seasons, but it's pretty close. I think... Comparable success. In the future, yeah, you the might two. be talking about Better Call Saul with Breaking Bad. I think it'll run for more seasons. I don't it's think it'll... for six seasons. I don't think it'll be more con- considered successful, though. In- yeah, but I don't. I don't know if you consider Jefferson's more successful mm-hmm. than than uh, all the family. I think just like on almost on par is kind of what I would say. Probably I, the other example I can think of is probably Joey um, and Friends. You know, that one. Yeah. No, no, that's not. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. It was it my turn to talk on, on an ongoing gag in Edith's incompetent singing, uh, or is Edith's incompetent singing? In actuality, Gene Stapleton is a professionally trained and accomplished singer who performed in musical theater and productions throughout her career, which is just hilarious. So did Seinfeld steal with Elaine's dancing? Wait, what? Well, an ongoing gag is Edith's incompetent singing. Oh, yeah. An ongoing gag on Seinfeld was Elaine's incompetent dancing. And she's actually a great dancer. I don't know if she's actually a great dancer. I was just wondering if maybe this is where they got it from. Oh, maybe. Could have been. That's a, that is a pretty funny gag, though. Yeah. <laughs> and we spoke about the Smithsonian earlier with Mr. Rogers' sweaters. Archie and Edith's easy chairs are now on display at the Smithsonian as well. Hmm. Carol O'Connor was living in Italy when he was offered the role of Archie Bunker. He accepted the role only on the condition that the producers would pay for his flight back to Italy if the pilot was not picked up. Really? This was the first television program to earn Emmys for all of its principal cast members. Very impressive. And this is interesting. For the second season, Norman Lear advised Carol O'Connor that his name would appear first in the credits scroll before the title of the show. O'Connor insisted that Gene Stapleton's name also be put before the credits 
and pressed Lear on it, who finally agreed, thereby giving both stars top billing. And Archie's line, Stifle, Edith, was ranked number 12 in TV Guide's list of the top 20 catchphrases in the August 21st through 27, 2005 issue. Hmm. And according to Norman Lear, many of the show's catchphrases, including meathead, dingbat, and stifle, were inspired by the same words he heard from his father while growing up. Uh, in one episode, Archie Bunker, without knowing it, issued what turned out to be a correct prophecy. During an argument with the meathead in Kelsey's bar, the latter walks out of the end, or out at the end, with Archie yelling out the door after him, you're going to get Regan in 1980, wise guy. Prophecy. It's like basically like the uh, like the Simpsons, just predicting the future. And, and Reagan th- did win in 1980. Yes, he, he did. did. Yes, Reaganomics. All right, we can get into how I great just, Ronald Reagan is in this show. Oh, if you want to let's right not now. for your no. sake. All right, let's. I mean, we can. I've read a lot of books about it. So voodoo economics. <laughs> <laughs> so why does this matter? Like there, I so uh, let's 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 first of all, I think we may have glossed over really quickly. Carol Connor and and really kind of like lobbying for Gene Stapleton's name to be have have top billing, which in the seventies, man and woman, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Right? Not that there weren't like and I think actually the seventies is a good appropriate time to talk about like all of these women actresses, right? Becoming like very like Carol Burnett and things like that, like starting to become like very prominent. Because that yeah. wasn't a thing before that. It was basically no. male dominated television shows and the women were just, you know, the wives, the girlfriends, the love interests, whatever it was. And I think, kind of like we talked about, this is one of those shows that got to realism. You know, it wasn't the cowboys anywhere. It's like real issues. You see different sides of the coin. You see bigotry. And it just, it set up that realism of a real family. You got to see how it was. What, I mean, it, so I, I, my original question, I, I guess what I, instead of asking a question, I guess what's, I just want to make a statement. I think, what a brave choice to go with a show like this like this is pretty risky mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons like number one like who knows if people are going to receive it very well but when you're kind of like mocking kind of like the current society in which we live in people could be offended by that especially when it's demonstrating or showing off like how bigoted people were 70s pre-70s whatever right yeah so i, I don't know i think it's just pretty cool they kind of took that stance and basically said we're going to almost make fun of a lot of you viewers whether you realize it or not mm-hmm. that we're ma- we're mocking you for how racist and bigoted you are and you're going to laugh at it and think oh that's funny i and that's my, and that was the whole point yeah. like do you relate to this yeah, people or identifying d- with it yeah. mm-hmm. w- identifying with it hopefully a lot of people saw themselves and think thought oh wow that's ridiculous that i act like that and they're making fun of me and maybe i should because of that stop acting like that i don't know Eh, deep i doubt it it probably i I mean i I would say that there's probably some of that like kind of like looking in the mirror and be like oh wow that's how i sound oh geez i should probably stop and then also some ah look look how funny that is someone else who thinks just like me yeah i love this guy right i'm not gonna stop because now it's on television and i and you know not to say that like is it making it okay like oh now i see it on tv it must be okay for me to for me to talk like this because you can turn on the tv and see it yeah. No, no, I mean, that's, that, that's what I was, I'm just yeah. thinking out loud. Yep. I think it's pretty impressive, and obviously it was one of the most well-known, I mean, impactful television shows. And I think now, looking back on it, again, I'll just go back to it's pretty brave of them to do that, and um, there aren't a lot of shows that take a look at, like, society 
It's toe in the line for sure. Yeah, yeah. Pretty impressive. So all in the family. Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. Very similar shows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. I can't tell them apart. I say that in jest. <laughs> yes. All right. So I think that was a pretty good rundown of the seventies. Um again, pretty cool starting I mean there I can remember specific episodes from these shows. Josh can't because he's again not old enough. Yes. But well, well, I watch a lot of All in the Family. Okay. And then, yeah. All right. Well, so we'll, we'll, we'll be diving into some future, more recent decades here uh, in the future. But first, as we wrap up this episode, I should say, lastly, let's do a little bit of nerd outreach. Yeah. And as always, thank yous. We'll start out with to my wife and my daughter for letting me come here, even though I locked you guys out of the house right now. So, oops. I love you. <laughs> Be home soon. Yep. I'd like to thank Josh's wife for being patient enough to let him stay here. I thought for sure he'd have to go home <laughs> yeah. and we'll have to record this another day. She won't be listening to this, so she won't hear that thank you. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> well, know that I have... Maybe Gianna will text her. I have given her that thanks. So yeah. thank you, Chelsea. Well, hopefully she found something to uh, occupy her time in, yeah. in the meantime. Yes. And yeah, I'll thank, um, I'll thank Megan. She's out there somewhere. Listening. Justin, who are you going to thank? I already thanked she, your your wife. Oh, that's she's, right. She's probably <laughs> yeah, right. she's probably well. She'll she'll probably listen to this eventually. I doubt Jana's going to listen to this. Does Jana listen? She's sitting at home with the dogs right now. No, she does not listen. Did she listen to the Valentine? She listened to that one. Yes, because okay. she's so vain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you contact us? Future so, show suggestions. How do you contact us? Uh, as always. Like, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, at Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at Nerd is the New CO2. Yeah. I, I, I messed up on that one. You're fine. <laughs> Justin's having a rough day. Guys, anybody, anybody has any idea on what we should be doing next, you can send an email to Nerd is the New Cool Podcast at gmail.com or use the hashtag Nerd is the New Cool Podcast on any of the socials. And where to hear us? Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just search Nerd is a New Cool Podcast. Our next episode, by the way, is going to be March Madness. I know that we, we did our picks in the mm-hmm. last episode. And you know what? We said at one point, like, a future episode is going to be March Madness. But we changed it because we can. Because right. we are in charge of this show. We are. Yeah. So sorry to, 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 I don't know, give you false hope. But now you will be having that episode coming to you. And this will be post- this will be post the actual 2020 March Madness Tournament. Yeah. So thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.